Welcome to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung Jr. Along with my brother Rick, we examine current events in the light of God's prophetic word. Rick, as I see our lineup today and our questions and our broadcast partners, government control and the end of democracy and the end times. I mean, there's a lot of words that we could use pertaining to today's program. Yeah, we certainly could. And those are the buzzwords that are floating around the world right now. And, you know, when I look at those things, Jimmy, one of the main things I see is that they fit right into setting up the stage for God's prophetic plan to take place in the future. Yes, and we do know that God is sovereign. His sovereignty is over all the earth, and he has a plan that will all come to fruition in the future. Ken Timmerman, David Dolan, an old friend of ours, Rabbi Yehuda Glick, along with R.C. Merle. I'm looking forward to today's program and, of course, the Legacy Series with Dr. Jimmy DeYoung, our father. Let's get started on the program right now with Ken Timmerman. Ken Timmerman joins us. He's our expert on geopolitical affairs. He's an analyst and an author, and you can find out more about him by going to KenTimmerman.com. Ken, thanks for being with us today. Rick, thanks for having me. It's always a pleasure. Well, Ken, we monitor many different uh, hotspots around the world, and one that we haven't talked about in a little while now is Iran, and it looks like the protests, they've been moved off the front page for a little while. Have they been quashed? Have they been moved underground? What's going on there? Well, the protests have not been quashed. Uh, Some have gone underground, true enough, but the reason they've gone off the headlines here in the West is because our media does not know how to cover them. When the Iranian regime uh, cuts off the Internet, Uh, it becomes very difficult for journalists here to talk to anybody Mm. inside Iran. And when they can't contact people inside Iran, there's not really much for them to report. They hear uh, what the regime is saying because the regime pushes that out. And that's a story of executions, of crackdowns, of really a quite radical security crackdown. And unfortunately, I have to say, no one in the European Union or the U.S. is challenging this wave of regime executions against the protesters. Nobody is challenging the security crackdown. Nobody's imposing a penalty or a price on the Iranian regime. So they're able to do this with impunity. Well, this just seems to emphasize the uphill climb that these protesters have to face. And, you know, they were very widespread, but it's a very difficult task. Well, we'll definitely keep them in mind. We'll keep an eye on that situation. We look at Iran, and one of the things that we talk about a lot is the alliances they have. They have a strong alliance with Russia. They have a growing alliance with China. And there's a story that came out in the news this week. Multiple Iranian agencies have purchased surveillance technology, facial recognition technology, which will allow them to crack down on women breaking the strict dress code. Uh, That's right. And this is something that the Chinese have perfected. Facial recognition technology is something that they used in Hong Kong when there were protests on Hong Kong a couple of years ago. They now have social passports for Chinese citizens where they are allowed greater freedoms if they behave themselves in the streets, if they refuse to take part in protests. Uh, They get credit. Uh, They have a credit-based system. And this is all backed by artificial intelligence and this facial recognition software. Frankly, it was just a matter of time before the Iranians got it. This is another tool in their arsenal. They are smart at using high tech to repress their own citizens. 
But, you know, the Iranian people are also pretty resourceful. So I've seen a lot of ways that they are getting around all of this electronic surveillance. And I think, you know, it's going to be the old story, Rick, of the sword and the shield. Can the Iranian regime uh, advance its sword into the side of the Iranian polity or will the Iranian people hold that, up that shield first and protect themselves? Mm, very interesting. Well, uh, so much going on in Iran right now and so many concerning, to say the least, so many concerning things taking place there. Uh, one of the nations that has the absolute most to fear is Israel. And with their new government, they may be in a better position to potentially strike back at Iran. Well, the Israeli military has been practicing attacks on Iranian nuclear sites for several years, and they believe that they are ready. What, what I found interesting recently was a statement by a former Mossad official, somebody who had actually been opposed to an earlier strike on Iran in 2012, who now says the time is very close to when Israel will strike uh, Iran and they have the capability. Uh, and he's saying this publicly. This is not something that we've heard before, that kind of public statement. So with the Netanyahu government being united, not a coalition government, as some of the previous governments have been, I think the possibility of a military strike uh, is greater than it has been for the past couple of years. Well, Ken, let's move away from Iran and we'll go back to Europe. And much of our talks over 2022 and the beginning of 2023 here have been centered around what's going on in the Ukraine and Russia and that Ukrainian crisis. What I'd like to focus on this week is how that is changing Europe. Uh, one of the things I wonder, this crisis has, uh, we look at the EU, we look at what their position is, whether they're able to retaliate or if they have any strength against Russia right now. How do you feel that this is changing the European Union and those European nations? Uh, I think the Ukraine conflict has had a profound impact on Europe. And I think bit by bit, it has shown that Europe really is not united. The European Union is not a union. There are two very definite camps inside the EU. There's one that is calling for uh, really maximalist pressure on Russia for the invasion of Ukraine. That's led by Poland, Sweden, the Baltic states. Now, the Baltic states, uh, you know, have, have firsthand knowledge of Soviet repression. They were annexed, incorporated in the Soviet Union, and only won their freedom at the end of the Cold War. They are afraid that the Russians will come back and take them, which is why they very quickly joined NATO as soon as they possibly could. And on the other side of that, you have the compromisers, those like France, Germany, Italy, and Spain, who would like to continue doing business with Russia, do not want an open confrontation, certainly don't want to see a war between the European Union and Russia over Ukraine. They have been hesitant in providing military hardware to Ukraine. Remember, we talked about this many months ago when the Germans were holding up the sale of, of missiles and other equipment to Ukraine. Well, that's loosening up now a bit as uh, they all see that Russia is continuing to take a hard line, is not going to back down. But look, Rick, I am actually very pessimistic when it comes to the EU. Uh, Macron of France, the president of France, when he came into office in 2017, was pledging a European strategic autonomy. He was trying to convince his European partners that they should have a separate 
military capability from the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, which united them to the United States. Macron failed. The Europeans have not set up a European defense. They are still dependent on NATO. And that is something that the French in particular are having a very hard time with. They would like to be leading a political military alliance in Europe, but they don't have the weapons and they don't have the money. They don't have the financial depth, if you wish, to be able to do it. Well, Ken, it sounds like you're saying that the European Union, especially as it is currently constituted, is disintegrating in the face of this Russian threat. But on the other side of the coin, if you looked at it and you would say this Ukrainian crisis, Russia attacking Ukraine, has exemplified the fact that the only way Europe and the European Union could leverage their power and uh, their influence is by being lockstep united and by having a consolidated military force. Is that true? Well, uh, that consolidated military force is NATO. And that is something that the Europeans have had to wake up to. Remember, it was President Trump who pressed the Germans to increase their military spending. He was successful in doing that. And he was applauded by Jen Stoltenberg, the secretary general of NATO. But without NATO, Europe is disintegrating. The Russians have been very smart. They've found the weak point, and that is energy. Germany is going to be very cold this winter. Sweden is going to be cold. In Paris this past week, you had tens of thousands of demonstrators and probably over 100,000 in the streets complaining about the price of electricity because it's spiraling out of control. In some places, it's four times what it was just last year. The Russians have found that soft spot in the European underbelly, and it is energy, and they're not going to let up. So the Europeans do not have an answer for it. They cannot turn back on the nuclear power plants fast enough. It's going to take several years for the 32 plants that have been shuttered in France to open back up. It's going to take years for the Swedes to resume nuclear power production and for the Germans, who've also shuttered their nuclear power plants. So uh, I don't have a very positive outlook for the European Union in the year or two years to come. Well, final question, since uh, our time is short, we look at this, uh, the Ukrainian crisis, but also the other wars, especially the one in Syria and some of those things taking place in the Middle East have created a migrant crisis, a immigration crisis for many of the countries there. How is that going to affect European unity in the coming years? Well, the Europeans are discovering that they have individual borders. Uh, the whole uh, project of European Union was to take down those borders. And for 20 some years, 30 years, it worked pretty well. But with migrants coming in from Turkey, from coming into islands in Greece, coming into Italy, from wherever they're fleeing, whether it's Libya, whether it's uh, the Middle East in general, they're all coming into Europe and the Europeans don't want them. <laughs> so they're closing their borders individually where they can. You have Hungary closing borders, Austria closing borders. Just these past 12 months, you've had over 300,000 illegal border crossings into the EU. That's a 64% increase from the previous year. Europeans are worried and they're going to be shutting those borders. Well, Ken, there is a changing dynamic all over the Middle East and all over Europe. You're here to report on it. We appreciate that. Thank you for doing what you do. And we look forward to talking to you again soon. 
Uh, th thanks for having me, Rick. Uh, I look forward to it. And check out my book, And the Rest is History. It's the stories of uh, uh, hostages, arms dealers, dirty tricks and spies, and an awful lot about Europe as well. Absolutely, Ken. And of course, you can find that by going to KenTimmerman.com. Great job, Ken. Well, we got to take a break. And when we come back, our Middle East News Update with David Dolan, right here on Prophecy Today Weekend. I'm Ruth Kramer with Mission Network News. Haiti lost its last 10 senators this week after their terms expired. The Caribbean nation now has no elected government officials left. For Haiti with Love's Evita Hart says, for now, that just means no paperwork. But it could give more power to the gangs who've run rampant since the president's assassination in July of 2021. For Haiti with Love shares the love of Jesus with their patients. Pray those turn into gospel opportunities. And in Pakistan, a Christian woman working as a security guard was threatened with blasphemy charges after asking a man for his parking pass. The man, an employee of the Pakistani government, parked his vehicle in a restricted area of the Karachi airport. Nehemiah with FMI says, It's an example of how blasphemy laws in Pakistan can be used against Christians, even outside of religious situations. Ask God to strengthen Pakistan's believers who live under this constant threat. And find your place in the story at missionnews.org. Mission Network News, a service of One Way Ministries. I'm Ruth Kramer. Have you always wanted to visit the land of Israel? Imagine what it would be like to walk in the footsteps of Jesus. With Joshua Travel, you can visit Israel past, present, and prophetic. The Bible will come alive as you see places like the shepherd's field where our Lord was born, Caesarea Philippi, Cana of Galilee, Capernaum, the Garden of Gethsemane, and the Garden Tomb. You'll even experience an exciting boat ride on the Sea of Galilee. You'll visit each site with Bible in hand as we take the time to not just visit the sites, but to help you understand their importance to our biblical heritage and to our prophetic future. We will place special emphasis on the eternal city of Jerusalem, the most important city in the world, and the place from where Jesus will rule and reign one day. Call Joshua Travel today at 423-821-3635 to find out more about this trip of a lifetime, or you can visit us online at joshuatravel.com. Welcome back to Prophecy Today Radio, the program that looks at current events in the light of Bible prophecy. Well, this is our Middle East news update, where we look at news coming out of the Middle East, specifically Israel, but all over the Middle East, actually. And to do that, we have our good friend, Dave Dolan. He's a uh, journalist and a Bible student in his own right. Dave, thank you for joining us. A blessing to be with you, Rick. Well, Dave, let's get started here. We're going to talk about, first of all, this new government that's coming in. We've talked about it quite a bit over the last few weeks. And as we're looking at it, it seems like there's actually potentially going to be some real changes in the way the area of Judea and Samaria, what we call Judea and Samaria, that maybe the, the world might call the West Bank, but there's going to be some real changes in the way that's administered. Definitely, there, there. It's already happening. In fact, Rick uh, Bazalel Smotrik, the um, finance minister, but he's also a minister inside of the defense ministry. That's never happened before. He met with the defense minister this week, Yoav Gallant, and they discussed who would do what concerning the Jewish communities in Judea and Samaria. And Smotrich and his party, supported by Prime Minister Netanyahu and many in the Likud want to see the communities, as I've mentioned before, taken out of the authority of the army, as they are now. The whole area 
is under defense control, and the defense ministry has run the whole show. If you want to put a new garden in almost, you have to get a permit from the defense ministry. If you want a new street light, you have on and on. So Smotrich wants to extend Israeli law, essentially, to those Israeli communities, most of which are right along the border with Israel proper, but some are in isolated uh, positions. They want to legalize a few additions to some existing communities, etc. So they met, and they said they're going to work out the details of that uh, sharing arrangement. But, of course, it's already uh, gaining a lot of criticism from the Palestinians and uh, their supporters around the world. Well, of course, David, the control and the sovereignty in the area of Judea and Samaria there, a land that is part of proper Israel but is still under dispute and some might call it occupied lands. It's something that we monitor on this program. Well, probably the even bigger story in the land of Israel right now, it's a very political story. We have not spoken about it yet, David, you and I, but I did speak with Winky Madad last week, and we talked about this issue of judicial reform. If you could, from your perspective as a journalist and also as an American who knows how our system of government works, could you explain what's going on here and what we need to know about this situation? Well, Rick, as we said on the phone before uh, the interview began, I could take an hour just going into this. It's a very big story, but I'll try to summarize it as best I can. Essentially, the new government wants to make several judicial reforms that will affect the Supreme Court quite a bit. And the left in Israel is fighting back hard against it. In fact, the Supreme Court uh, Chief Justice Esther Hayot on Thursday um, said this was an unrestrained attack upon the Supreme Court. She said only 22 laws out of 2,000 have ever been annulled by the Supreme Court, and it's not such a big deal. But it's essentially what we have in the United States, a court that tends to be very politically active, and those on the right in particular feel it's too active and has been meddling in, uh, you know, the legislative business too much and that sort of thing. So these reforms have been proposed. And um, the uh, Justice Minister Yariv Levin, he uh, made these uh, pronouncements of what exactly they're going to do. And to summarize it, Israel does not have a constitution, unlike the U.S., so that's a difference. But it has what are called basic laws, which function essentially as a constitution. But there's been many Supreme Court challenges to legislation involving those laws and changes. And the the right feels they've been too liberal and too active, too activist, and are trying to restrict that. Well, this has set off a political firestorm inside of Israel. Last Saturday, 300,000 people gathered in Tel Aviv to protest these reforms. There were Palestinian flags waved. There were Nazi symbols on some of the signs uh, equating the Netanyahu government with the Nazis and that sort of thing. And the new police minister called for stronger police actions against these sorts of things and even the use of water cannon, etc. Why that's significant is because tonight in Tel Aviv, in fact, uh, very soon now, Rick, um, a second huge demonstration is being planned. Again, another three, 400,000 people are expected. And the police minister said he was uh, briefed that there will be trouble. There is going to be some violence, they believe. And the president of Israel earlier in the week 
said, everybody calm down. Let's just chill a little bit. These are proposals. We'll see where they go. But the left is just livid, Rick, and I'm talking about all sorts of politicians, all sorts of famous authors and actors and others were at last Saturday's demonstration are expected tonight again, saying this is the beginning of civil war in Israel. It's the beginning of the end of democracy in Israel. Similar things we heard from President Biden during the last election in the United States. So it's a very similar situation, but it does have the potential to create uh, a deep rift inside of Israel. And we'll just have to see where that goes. Well, Dave, I can appreciate a strong respect for democracy, but I think a lot of this is very politically motivated. So we'll keep an eye on that situation. It's definitely a huge story in Israel right now. Well, and we'll continue on an area that we like to keep our listeners updated on is the Temple Mount, this very important piece of real estate. And we're going to talk with Rabbi Yehuda Glick a little bit later. He's a huge personality in the push or the movement to create a Jewish presence or keep a Jewish presence on the Temple Mount in Israel. But before we get to that, there was a story in the news this week which talked about the British minister, the UK minister for the Middle East, and he came to the Temple Mount, visited the Temple Mount, and reaffirmed that it needs to stay under Jordanian custodianship. Yes, Rick, it was the Minister of State for Mideast Affairs in the British government, Lord Tariq Ahmed, as his name suggests, he is a Muslim, and he visited this week, uh, went up to the Temple Mount, and openly prayed there. And some of the Israeli commentators noted that Israelis can't do that, Jews can't do that, but a politician from a foreign government can walk up and do that easily. So he made those statements that it remain under Jordanian overall control, uh, that status quo remain in place, there be no additional Jewish prayer, etc. He met on Monday with the Israeli foreign minister. He said, you must avoid provocative unilateral actions. That's a quote. He met with the foreign minister, Ellie Cohen, and others. So, And then he met with the Palestinian officials. He went down to Hebron and uh, toured a couple Palestinian towns, etc. But he's known to be in the UK government, the, the most uh, pro-Palestinian member of the cabinet, basically. And it wasn't a surprise that he made those sorts of statements. But uh, they do, of course, want to see Israel Um, keep the situation as calm as it can. Israel wants to do that. And in fact, the foreign ministry issued a statement saying that, that we're not changing the status quo. We're not riling things up here. It's the other side that's attempting to do that and doing that. So the international conflict over the Temple Mount continues as well as the local one as well. Well, my last question for you, uh, and it does involve Russia, it looks like Israel and Russia may, with uh, Netanyahu coming into power, may look to forge closer ties, and that may be a disappointment to Ukraine. Can you tell us about that, why that might be happening? Well, Israel's been walking a tightrope all along since the war in Ukraine began, because, as I just mentioned, Russia plays a huge role in Syria. Uh, has forces there, and Israel's ability to strike those Iranian targets depends on Russia basically looking the other way, so they don't want to anger Moscow or Putin. They want to placate them as much as they can. Nevertheless, they're part of the democratic West. They don't like this invasion. Israel has been helping behind the scenes with Ukraine. But the new government, it's thought that since Netanyahu and Putin are longtime personal friends, that the policy may shift a bit more towards supporting Russia in the war. 
But it, it, there won't be open support for Russia. Neither will there be very open support for Ukraine. Israel does send helmets and some other aid to Ukraine. It's rumored that they ha- are helping them to target these Iranian drones operating in Ukraine. That may or may not be the case, hasn't been confirmed. But we may see a little bit more of a shift towards Russia under the new government. But basically, Rick, the truth is Israel wants to stay out of the political fight over that Mm. as much as they can. They really don't have a dog in it. And of course, they're taking in Ukrainian refugees and supporting them. And they feel like maybe that's enough of a role for us. Well, David, it looks like we typically start our conversation focused around Israel and then work our way out. You do a good job of showing us how these issues are all interrelated and connected. We appreciate that. Thank you so much, and we look forward to talking to you again soon. I am glad to do it, Rick. God bless. Well, we're going to take a break right now on Prophecy Today Radio, but you want to stay tuned because in the next half hour, we're going to talk with Rabbi Yehuda Glick. He is one of the leading personalities when it comes to expanding the Jewish presence on the Temple Mount and even rebuilding the Temple. You won't want to miss this conversation. We're also going to talk with R.C. Murrow. That's all ahead right here on Prophecy Today Radio. Have you ever wanted to know more about God's plan for the future? Have you ever tried to understand prophetic passages in God's Word, like, say, the book of Revelation, and been frustrated at not being able to figure it out? Dr. Jimmy DeYoung's latest CD series, Keys for Unlocking God's Plan for the Future, will help you gain the ability to understand where to start in your study of prophecy and allow you to read God's Word in a new and exciting way. Understanding God's prophetic Word will allow you to live a pure and productive life until Jesus returns for the church. Keys will help you gain the tools you need to understand the end-time events as foretold in God's Word. Dr. DeYoung lays out a systematic approach to Bible prophecy for those who want to know God's plan for the future. Tracks included are A Roadmap Through the End Times, The Jew in Jerusalem, Daniel and the Antichrist, Ezekiel and Messiah's Temple, and Revelation and Babylon. To order your copy of Dr. Jimmy DeYoung's Keys for Unlocking God's Plan for the Future, visit our website at prophecytoday.com. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung Jr. along with Rick. We examine current events in the light of God's prophetic word. Rick, a good friend, a longtime friend of the family, coming up in this next half hour, Rabbi Yehuda Glick. What made you think about asking him to come on the program this week? Well, Jimmy, and the opportunities that we have to look at the news and what's taking place, his name pops up many times. He just was in a Wall Street Journal article, and you see him all over the place. He is certainly one of the guys that is one of the main personalities in bringing back not only a Jewish presence to the Temple Mount, but also talking about the rebuilding of the Temple. Yes. You know, and that's what we try to focus on as we look at the Jewish people, the state of Israel. David Dolan helps us focus from a point of view as a believer. Rabbi Yehuda Glick, Israel Madad, Winky Madad, as we've referred to him, they are not believers. They're Jewish men, religious Jews. They have an emphasis of studying 
the Old Testament. They also have an interest in the rebuilding of a temple, the temple mount, the 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 use of the temple mount in the city of Jerusalem from the past as the Jewish people and getting a raising an awareness for the Jewish people to go to that temple. That's right, Jimmy. And we look at it from two perspectives. One, we do know that God has given that land, that temple mount, that most sacred spot on the earth to the Jewish people. And so it will be theirs forever. And there will be a temple there in the future. But before that future millennial temple, that future temple, there's going to be another temple. And we look at that as they are preparing to build this temple. We look at that and we see how close that could be. Yes, very close indeed. In fact, our good friend, Rick, Rabbi Yehuda Glick. Well, that's right, Jimmy. We have with us today Rabbi Yehuda Glick. Uh, long-term listeners to this program will recognize that name. He's been on some of our uh, DVD materials talking about the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem. Uh, he's a former Knesset member from the Likud. He's a president of the Shalom Jerusalem Foundation, and his life has essentially been uh, dedicated to expanding Jewish access on the Temple Mount. Uh, Rabbi Glick, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Shalom to you, Rick. Shalom, uh, Jimmy. And uh, just uh, before we start, I can say that I definitely, I think it's the first time we're speaking since uh, your father, uh, mm -hmm. Dr. Jimmy DeYoung Sr., passed away, and I really want to share with you the sadness in my heart of the loss of such a loving person, a lover of God, a lover of Jerusalem, and a personal friend. And uh, I am so proud that the two of you are continuing his uh, Prophecy Today project and bringing about and raising the awareness of the centrality of Jerusalem. Well, thank you so much for those words. I, I appreciate those words as the person who follows him in the broadcast chair here on Prophecy Today, but even more so as his son. Very nice words, and we appreciate that. Well, uh, before we get started, and it has been a little while since you've been on the program, we have many new listeners. If you could, could you tell them a little bit about yourself and about your mission as it concerns the Temple Mount there in Jerusalem? Okay, I'll share a little bit about myself, although I don't like speaking too much about myself, but uh, I've been involved <laughs> for the last, uh, I would say, probably two decades in dealing with raising the awareness of the centrality of Jerusalem, and especially Zion, the Temple Mount, Mount Moriah, the Mount of the House of Hashem, God Almighty, as the world center for calling out and raising the banner of Hashem as the King of the world and making every effort to turn the place into the house of prayer for all nations. My public activity on the topic began in 2005 when I resigned from the government. The, the only highest-ranked civil servant who resigned from the government because of the disengagement pro program, uh, where they uprooted Jews from uh, Gaza and uh, the north of Shamron. And then I became, I was offered the job as the director of the Temple Institute, and uh, ever since then, I've been very active in, in, in dealing with the uh, encouraging people who are believers in Bible, believers in, in the Tanakh, to come to the Temple Mount and remember its centrality. In 2009, I left the Temple Institute and I established the, uh, what was at the time called the Temple Mount Heritage Foundation and later became the Shalom Jerusalem Foundation, where my activity was based to just encouraging more and more people to come to the Temple Mount and, uh, and, and, and not stop 
uh, on their way and reach in Jerusalem the, the Western Wall, but to go on top on the mountain at a certain point, 214, eight years ago, October 29th, at the end of an event we had in Jerusalem in honor of the Temple Mount and in honor of the return of people coming back to the Temple Mount, there was an attempt to assassinate me. I was shot four bullets, point blank, to the center of my body. But thanks to uh, the Israeli medical system and to millions of people around the world who were praying on my behalf, I survived the assassination attempt. Since then, I've, I've become more and more uh, active and more and more known, more and more motivated to turn the Temple Mount into a world center of shalom, a shalom of God's name. And at a certain point, I became a member of the Israeli Knesset. I served in the Israeli Knesset and the Likud party uh, for three years, from 216 to 219. At the same time, uh, I, as I said, I survived the, the assassination attempt. But uh, unfortunately, there was a sad ending to that story as well. My wife, who was standing right next to me, and in the past had been widowed, uh, she saw the whole thing and she herself uh, took it very painfully. And she actually, her situation became very difficult. And like two years later, she passed away. That was January 1st, 2018. In uh, 2019, I, God blessed, sent me an ability to uh, re rehabilitate my life and remarried. And now for the last uh, almost four years, I'm married to uh, Hadass. And together we are dealing with rebuilding. Rebuilding on two levels. Rebuilding the house of God on Temple Mount. But one of the conditions that the, that the prophets tell us for the rebuilding of the temple is also rebuilding private houses, families of orphans and widows who have lost uh, their parents. And uh, we together are dealing with those both topics. On the one hand, we, we, we run the Shalom Jerusalem Foundation, which calls uh, all people, all believers in God, and uh, to, to face Jerusalem as the center of, of God in the world. And at the same time, we, are, we, have, uh, we run the uh, Amitzim, the Israel Organization for Young Widows and Orphans. So that's really, uh, on a nutshell, a little bit about myself. But I think what's more important that we talk about the topic. Well, that's right. But uh, just learning a little bit about you, you are one of the central figures, one of the central characters in what is taking place, kind of the um, reemergence of the idea that the Jewish people, that the Jewish identity uh, deserves to have a presence on the Temple Mount there in Jerusalem. And that was brought up. There was a recent Wall Street Journal article that came out, and you were pictured on there. You were a former Knesset member of, of the Likud on the Temple Mount, and it seemed to me that they were focusing on the fact that you might have been praying on the Temple Mount. So if we look at that, can you talk about that article and the importance of a Jewish presence on the Temple Mount as well as Jewish prayer on the Temple Mount. Okay. Uh, first of all, I want to say that the very fact that the Wall Street Journal raised the, the, mm. the issue of, uh, of the Temple Mount, that the very fact that the Wall Street Journal talks about the Temple Mount as uh, the center of, of Jewish prayer, that in itself, in my eyes, is, 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 a, is, is already a victory. But not only that is a victory, but uh, the, the developments that we see in the past few years on the Temple Mount is also a victory. I mean, uh, this, this, I, I began mainly my activity for Temple Mount, that's in, like in 2009, 
There were 5,000 Jews who were ascended in Temple Mount in, five, in 2009. In 2022, we reached 48,000, almost 50,000 Jews who visited the Temple Mount, and that, that is only Jews. And when we look at the uh, non-Jewish tourists who come to the Temple Mount, if in the uh, uh, 2000, we're going to start off in 2013, there were 280,000 non-Jewish visitors who visited Temple Mount. In uh, 2019, before COVID, we had 800,000. So uh, the activity that we're doing has really uh, brought about more and more people to recognize the, the centrality of, of Temple Mountain. It's really a process. And I, I must say we look at it as a process. It's a, 120 years ago, the process of Zionism, the return of the Jewish people back to, to Israel, uh, the fulfilling of the prophecy was a, a major turning point in the history of mankind. And then the establishment of the State of Israel, the, re, the return and uniting the city of Jerusalem in 1957, what we, we do see now in the past decade, decade and a half, is that we're, we're reaching the next generation of Zionism. We are changing the music on the Temple Mount. If for so many years we were used to the fact that the music that we hear on Temple Mount is that of violence, is that of harassment, of that of incitement against anybody else who's praying, Today, we have managed to make a major change. Uh, one, of the, uh, I'd say one of the milestones in that change, if in, the, in 2010 and 2012, uh, the Israeli police referred to me because I was encouraging Jews and non-Jews to come to the Temple Mount. They referred to me as, quote, the most dangerous man in the Middle East. And that was just because I was encouraging people to go to the Temple Mount. Last week, when the new government came into power, the previous prime minister, who was a prime minister for a very short time, but when he summarized what his government did in one year, Yair Lapid, he, he mentioned that one of the achievements was that there was a, we broke a record in the ascending of Jews to Temple Mount. Mm. Now, the very fact that a left-wing prime minister in Israel mentioned that as an achievement, and whereas ten years ago that was considered a nuisance, I think that, that's, that there's no, no greater uh, proof than that that, that we're, we're reaching at the turning point. Uh, of course, as the uh, article mentioned, and that probably was one of the reasons the article came out this week, last week the new uh, Minister of National Security, uh, who is in charge of the security on Temple Mount as well, went to visit the Temple Mount one, on, his very, uh, one of his, on his third day, I think, in office, and uh, they, they were warning us that who knows what's going to happen. There's going to be a third world war. The whole Middle East is going to go on fire. The, the American administration was warning us. The Arab countries around us were warning us. But as I can tell you, I've, I've been on Temple Mount three times since then. And as far as I, I can see, third world war has not begun. So we have to remember that when God tells us to do, to put the Temple Mount in the center of our faith, this is exactly, exactly what we are referring to. We are referring to going straight in the path of God. And that is what Shalom Jerusalem Foundation is all about. The Shalom Jerusalem Foundation is here to make Temple Mount holy again. Holiness means that when people pray there, you don't condemn them. When people use violence there, that's when you condemn them. We have to change the music on Temple Mount where harassment, incitement will be considered 
uh, un, uh, uh, not, not legitimate. And at the same time, prayer should be encouraged by all people who are praying to the one and only God, Hashem, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Well, Yehuda, just to quickly comment on two things you said there, I certainly have seen over the years since the first time I visited Israel in the 80s, throughout the 90s, and then in the 2000s, I certainly have seen a linear progression of the idea that the Jewish people are meant to have a presence on the Temple Mount, even potentially a temple. And then secondly, Yehuda, I wanted to remind you of the last time I saw you, and that was me about three or four years ago taking a small group up onto the Temple Mount and you were standing there. Now, you weren't there with cameras. You weren't there to make a big deal. You were just standing there quietly at the entrance, encouraging Jewish people to go up and talking to people about the Temple Mount, putting your actions where your speech is and what you do. So I, I wanted to remind you of that incident and just use it as an example of how you are encouraging Jewish presence on the Temple Mount. Well, Yehuda, I am certainly sympathetic to your cause, and as you know, we, uh, over the course of our ministry, have talked about the importance of a Jewish presence on the Temple Mount, but as you talk, I listen to the passion in your voice, and you, you are not only a, a rabbi and a religious figure as well there, but you're a former member of the Knesset, which basically means you're a politician looking ahead, and now unlike any other time in my lifetime and most of our lifetimes as we look at this, there's a polarization here in America. You look at it between conservatives and, and, and liberals, and there in Israel, there's this polarization as well. If you look down the road, how do you see this all playing out? Will the two sides, even inside the the Jewish state of Israel, will the two sides be able to coexist? Because what you're talking about, and again, I'm certainly sympathetic to that fact, and I believe that, that the Jewish people do have an historical claim to the Temple Mount, and that they do have a right to have a presence and to pray on the Temple Mount. How are those two things going to coexist when you look at the, the different factions and the polarization that's inside of Israel right now? Well, as you said, I'm a rabbi, and I also mastered in, in, in Jewish history. My master's in history, one of the most difficult—I can talk a lot about the past, uh, one of the most difficult things is for me to, to predict is the future. Uh, I don't know what will be. I'm pretty, I, as, as you said, together we're looking at what's going on in the world. The divide between uh, the different peoples and different beliefs. But on the other hand, I, I must say, you know, I'm, I'm not. Uh, I think Israel, the people of Israel, have gone through so much. We've overcame many, many traumas, many uh, tragedies in the history of the people of Israel, and I think. Uh, yeah, I, I'm very, I buy my, my glasses at the optimist, so I'm very optimistic. Right. If I would buy my glasses at the pessimist, maybe I would be pessimistic. I'm a believer in God, and I believe that eventually this is leading to a good thing. How exactly it's going to happen, I don't know. I do hope, and I do teach, and I do educate to learn, to listen, to respect, and to understand that we're all here to serve one Hashem. We're all here to serve one Hashem. And Hashem created us that we should create. And that's if, if we look at the, at the portion in the book of Genesis, the final word uh, at the end, it begins with God created the world, but the final word is that God created us, that we should do. And just like husband and wife create a home together and create a family together, and that's 
a, a, a value which, which the, the Bible is trying to teach us the value of family and where Abraham was told to, to serve his descendants will be a source of blessing to all the families of the earth. And every family, it consists of a man and a woman which are two opposites. And it's totally different kinds. But together, they create a human. A human is, is consisted of, of a husband and a wife. And they create a home. They create a family. And, that, and even though man and woman are totally different in their perspective and their characteristics and their uh, and, and nature, that is the beauty of learning uh, couplehood and learning to build a family. And uh, that's where, where when families lose a parent, where we have to come and, and try to help these the surviving parents to, uh, to manage to continue to serve as a parent and to, man- and, and to manage and his children uh, respect him and honor him uh, or her, the, the surviving parent. But uh, uh, we, we have to understand that the same, issue, same thing comes to, to, to humanity. God created us all different, but he wants us all to serve him, and he wants us all to worship him. And that's what the idea of Jerusalem, which, which means the city of Shalom, and Shalom doesn't only mean peace. It means the city of the palace of God, the city of the harmony of God, and harmony exists only when there's diversity. And so I hope we learn all to respect the diversity, and not to do any kind of delegitimization of the other side. Well, Rabbi Yehuda Glick, I certainly appreciate you as one of the main personalities right now in the efforts to expand the Jewish presence on the Temple Mount and essentially to rebuild the Temple. We appreciate you being on the program. Before I say goodbye, if you could, if somebody wants to learn more about you or your organization... Yeah, first of all, it's Shalom Jerusalem Foundation. It's shalomjerusalem.org. Shalom Jerusalem Foundation. You can definitely follow us. We have a a YouTube, we have a Facebook, and we have a website. Rabbi Yehuda Glick, thank you so much for being on the program. We look forward to talking to you. Thank you, Shalom from Jerusalem. Rick, I love Rabbi Yehuda Glick and his understanding and what is going on there. He has such a, a colorful history and everything that he's been through. Knesset, an assassination attempt, really the spokesperson for the Temple Institute being very much involved. And of course, uh, his involvement now in the state of Israel and helping us understand uh, God's plan as we see it unfold with the Jewish people. And I think that's so very important. Well, on the line with us now is uh, R.C. Murrow. R.C., welcome back to the program. It's really good to be back with you, Jimmy. It really is good to have you. And, you know, after we talk about things on the program, I see Fox News or any of these other uh, sites, our sources that we go to. Uh, I know they're not following us, but I do think that we're staying out ahead of some topics, especially the ones that you and I and and Ken and David Dolan and all of our regulars that we discuss, and that's what we do because we have a worldview. But I want to follow up on a conversation about central bank digital currencies from our December 31st, 2022 program. And on that program, RC, you said this, the recent meltdown of the cryptocurrency exchange, FTX, now being called the biggest financial scandal in history has forced the Federal Reserve to launch a 12-week pilot program in the digital dollar, and we should know more about that by mid-February. Now, you have found a new report that goes even further. What can you tell us about it? Yeah, Jimmy, this was a a report that came out on the Daily Wire um, on January 6th, and, and, and the headline really, really stopped me cold. It said, the Federal Reserve recommends banks 
avoid cryptocurrencies as a possible U.S. CBDC is weighed. Mm. So the federal regulators are warning banks that due to the implosion of the what we ju- you just mentioned about the FTX scandal being the largest financial scandal in history, that the cryptocurrency sector is being characterized by uh, significant volatility, possible fraud, warning executives of scams, legal uncertainties and contagion between firms rocked by recent tumult and cryptocurrency markets, uh, uh, unquote. Jimmy, it goes even deeper. A statement from the Federal Reserve, the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation and the Office of Control of the Currency said the agencies have significant safety and soundness concerns with business models that are concentrated in crypto assets uh, or have con- concentrated exposures to cryptocurrency sector. So, you know, with that bo- backdrop, the only thing the article didn't reference was the 12-week central bank digital dollar trial that began on November 15th mm. and will run till mid-February. That, I should say, when CBDCs are issued, the use of non-central bank uh, coins may be outlawed. And there's a, a real precedent for that already in place. On January 4th, 2022, China's central bank launched a pilot version of a wallet app for the digital yuan. Mm. On September 22nd, 2022, China introduced the digital yuan in 22 provinces for iOS and Android and domestic app stores. And on September 29th, 2022, China banned the use of all non-central bank cryptocurrencies. You know, central bankers do not want competition from non-bank cryptocurrencies that they really cannot control. Wow, wow, we're seeing <laughs> we're seeing all over the world we're seeing control it seems to be the major buzzword of governments and not only in China but really here in the United States. I mean, and I could go on and and we don't really get into domestic issues as far as how that plays in, but we are seeing far-reaching aspects of government into our personal lives. Once again, RC, how do we relate this to Bible prophecy? Yeah, a second article, Jimmy, that we posted just this morning on Prophecy Tracker uh, by the Technocracy News uh, headline. It said, CBDC's Trojan Horse for Total Control. Now, the article said this, gold is not dead and will never be dead to the global banking system. It is inevitable that gold will eventually be forced into some coupling with the CBDCs. So, you know, what's happening here with secular websites is oftentimes they'll miss how CBDCs could lead to the fulfillment of Revelation 13, 16, and 17. It says all people, small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, will be forced to wear a mark on their right hand or forehand just to be able to buy and sell. Now, when that happens, there'll be no need for central banks or any other bank because every transaction will be facilitated and recorded by the mark of Antichrist. You know, a verse in Ezekiel 7:19 speaks to a time when men will be so frightened by what is happening around them that even their possessions will become a liability. Mm. Ezekiel 7:19 says this, they will throw their silver into the streets and their gold will be like refuse. Their silver and their gold will not be able to deliver them. Now, this exact scenario happened for the first time when Babylon attacked Jerusalem in 586 BC. At that time, people realized that money could not save them from the uh, coming calamity and, in fact, became a liability to the people that feared, even feared their neighbors. And it will happen again a second time and final time when Babylon is destroyed. Revelation 16, 19 says, And God remembered Babylon the great and gave her the cup filled with wine of the fury of his wrath. Babylon 
will have been the center of world commerce for the kings of the earth. The tremendous wealth of gold and silver will be meaningless again. Revelation 18:11 says, and the merchants of the earth will weep and mourn over her for no one buys their merchandise anymore. So that period of time, Jimmy, will mark the end of the tribulation period and the soon return of Jesus Christ for 1,000 years of peace. That is so very important, R.C., just knowing that information. And really, when you understand the book of Revelation, there's uh, there's ecumenical Babylon. That's Revelation chapter 17, the one world church. Revelation 18, financial Babylon. Antichrist sets up his headquarters in actual Babylon. It's never been destroyed. Two peoples that will be wiped out as if they never were. That will be the Edomites or the descendants of the Edomites and the Babylonians. And that is mentioned there in Revelation 18, where it says uh, six times it talks about a destruction of this financial center of the world, and it will be destroyed. But before we get to that, seven years of the tribulation where the Antichrist does set up the mark of the beast. And before we get to that, before we get to the seven-year tribulation period, the rapture of the church must take place. R.C., as we look at this information, you know, how should we live our lives uh, on a daily basis? And I know we all always ask you this question, but I want to help people to understand how as Christians we should live. I think we should live expectant for, for, the, for the coming of the Lord for mm. his church. You know, we don't have a time frame for it. We don't have a prophecy marker for it. We just know that it could happen at any moment before we even finish this conversation. Yes. And, and I think we live expectant, and we, and, and we say to, to God, find us ready, Lord. Find yes. us ready. Amen. Well, R.C. Merle, prophecytracker.org is his website. I know a lot of people are going there to find out information, not only from a financial point of view, but all the other aspects of content that you provide there. It's a great website to go to. R.C., thank you again for keeping us updated on this information. It's very important when we are examining current events in the light of God's prophetic word. Thank you, R.C. We'll look forward to being with you soon. Thank you, Jimmy. God bless. R.C. Murrow with prophecytracker.org. We're going to have to take a break. And when we come back, our legacy series with Dr. Jimmy DeYoung. This week, we're going to be answering the question, which nation did Ishmael father? And it wasn't the Arab people. Get your Bibles. Get ready. Genesis chapter 25 is where we'll be right here on Prophecy Today Weekend. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung Jr. Along with Rick, we examine current events in the light of God's prophetic word. Rick, over the last couple of weeks, uh, we've been talking about a trip to Israel, and this just so happens to be our third trip within the last, really, four months, and uh, it's coming up soon. It is, Jimmy, and there is actually some spots on it. Now, we don't know always have this, but it's a tight time frame. If you're interested, we mentioned this last week. Several people called us, and now it looks like they're going to be going to Israel with us. So that's exciting. This is a chance to get back in the land. No greater classroom. Many people have been putting it off because of COVID and different things. Now's the time to go. If you want to go, call our office, 423 825 Six two four seven. Give us a call right away. Don't delay because we need to get your details to see if this is the trip that you can take. Well, it's time now for our legacy series. And last week in our study on answering the question, where is the United States in Bible prophecy? We promised to answer the question this week. What one nation did Ishmael father? 
We showed you in our last study that Ishmael did not father the Arab world of today. That's Genesis chapter 17 and verse 20. says Ishmael fathered only one nation. The word of God does have the answer to Ishmael's descendants. In fact, that's our study for this week. Please take your Bible and go with us to Genesis chapter 25 as Dr. Jimmy DeYoung continues his legacy series this week. Chapter 25 of the book of Genesis, verse 18 says that Ishmael goes to live in a place called at that time Arabia. He does have 12 sons. The text tells us in chapter 25, they live in tents. They are chiefs of tribes and they go after each other. Indeed, they were very aggressive in all of their actions. In fact, Arabic would use this word to describe these young men. All of Ishmael's sons were Islamic warriors. Wait a minute. I'm not talking about Islam as a religion in the world. I'm using the Arabic word Islam, which means submission. Brain under submission. It does not mean peace. It means brain under submission. And so Ishmael fathered a people, 12 sons who would be tribal leaders who would bring their brothers under submission. Thus, they were called Islamic warriors. And thus, this is the preculture to Islam coming into existence. In fact, Muhammad, who established the Islamic faith, made this statement. He said, I am a direct descendant of Ishmael. He was one of the tribal leaders of those 12 tribes. And then he established the Islamic faith. Ishmael fathered one nation, Arabia, now Saudi Arabia. By the way, you know what the word Arab means when we use the true definition of the word? It means Bedouin or nomad. We're not talking about a people. We have allowed the journalists, basically, to misuse the word. Words have meanings. We need to understand the meanings of words. Arab means Bedouin or nomad. That's what the Arabian people are. Until they found oil, they were Bedouins or nomads walking through the desert, making certain they could find some pasture land for their sheep and goats. They lived in tents made out of goat hair. They were Bedouins. They could roll that tent up very quickly, move to another spot. So they were nomads. That's what Ishmael became as we see the establishment of the nations. And uh, in chapter 25, also, there's the story of Isaac and Rebecca, and they have twin boys, Jacob and Esau. Those two young men become nations as well. We're talking about the origins of nations. Those two young men become nations as well. But if you look at chapter 25 of the book of Genesis, verse 23, Rebecca is told by the Lord himself that there are two nations within her womb. And this is important because we need to understand the origins of nations. If we're going to understand Bible prophecy, we must understand the origins of nations. Go back just for a moment to chapter 10 of the book of Genesis and let me show you something. Chapter 10 in the book of Genesis has the record of both Shem, Ham, and Jepheth. We showed you Shem, uh, Jepheth, and we showed you Ham. 
Shem is here in verse 21, and unto Shem also the father of all the children of Eber, and all the way down through the genealogy. Then in verse 31 it says, and these are the sons of Shem after their families, after their tongues, in their lands, after their nations. Verse 32, chapter 10 of Genesis, these are the families of the sons of Noah, after their generations, in their nations, and by these were the nations divided in the earth after the flood. This is the origin or the establishment of nations. And as we've read, you've heard names familiar to the prophetic passages in God's word that lay out an end time scenario. Well, indeed, that's the origins of nations. Let me also now give you one more bit of information. And that is that these nations will be forever. The omnipresence, always present nations that are going to be into the future. Go to the book of Isaiah just for a second. Isaiah chapter 2. Isaiah 2 is somewhat of a kingdom chapter talking about what's going to happen in the kingdom. And Isaiah gets a word from the Lord and here's what he says. Isaiah chapter 2 and verse 2. And it shall come to pass in the last days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established in the top of the mountains and then it be exalted above the hills and all nations will flow unto it. Now, what am I talking about? I'm talking about the kingdom being set up. Notice what he says. The mountain of the house of the Lord. The mountain of the house of the Lord. The Lord's house. That mountain is the temple mount, Mount Moriah in the city of Jerusalem. That's the location where the Lord's house, the temple is going to be built. Zechariah chapter 6 and verse 12 says Jesus Christ returns. He builds that temple. 2 Samuel chapter 7, the Davidic covenant says that is an absolute statement that will take place because God made an unconditional promise to King David. I will establish a kingdom. I will put a temple up on the temple mount in Jerusalem and you'll have one of your sons rule and reign from that area forever. And here in Isaiah chapter 2 and verse 2 it says, and the nation shall flow unto this mountain, the house of the Lord. Go to Micah just a moment. The book of Micah. Micah is a similar passage of scripture. Micah chapter 4. And it's talking about the last days as well. Notice what it says. Micah chapter 4 verse 1. But in the last days it shall come to pass that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established in the top of the mountains. And that shall be exalted above the hills and people shall flow unto it. And many nations shall come and say... Come and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of God of Jacob, and he will teach us of his ways, and he will walk, and we will walk in his paths. For the law shall go forth out of Zion, and out of the word of the Lord from out of Jerusalem. As you look at a road map through eschatology, 6,000 years ago, God sent Jesus to create the heavens, the earth, and all that in them is. Uh, That's the book of Colossians chapter 1 verse 16. By him were all things created. Come along for 4,000 years. Jesus Christ comes, lives, died, buried, resurrects, goes to heaven. 2,000 years now into the future we come to this next event. Which will be the rapture of the church. Jesus shouts, Archangel shouts, trumpet of God sounds. We're out of here to be with him. Then there's going to be a seven year period of time called the tribulation. a terrible time of judgment upon the earth. Followed by the return of the Lord Jesus Christ back to the city of Jerusalem. A thousand year millennial kingdom. And at the end of that thousand years, the great white throne judgment. Where Jesus Christ will be the judge. Sentencing all of those who have rejected him in the lake of fire. That is a walkthrough or a roadmap for end time events eschatology. 
the rapture of the church, the next main event, which is going to happen, the seven years, the return of Christ, then the thousand-year millennial kingdom. Isaiah chapter 2, Micah chapter 2 are talking about the kingdom period. The kingdom period when there is going to be a temple in Jerusalem and all the nations... All the nations will go up. The book of Zechariah chapter 14 says, Every nation in this world, once a year, on the Feast of Tabernacles, that's the last of the seven Jewish feasts, the Feast of Tabernacles will be required to go to Jerusalem. If you don't go to Jerusalem, plagues could be cast upon your nation, or in fact, a famine or a drought would be so bad you're not able to produce food. You must go to Jerusalem. All the nations go to Jerusalem. In the book of Isaiah, chapter 19, it talks about three, the Assyrians, the Egyptians, and the Jews, Israel, coming together, all speaking the Hebrew language, walking down the king's highway, making your way up to Jerusalem. There will be a gathering of all the nations. There are two nations or two peoples that will be wiped out. And in our studies ahead, we will look at who those two are. But all the nations that attack Israel will receive redemption and will serve the Lord during the millennial kingdom. And so this is an absolute about nations. They are omnipresence, at least in the kingdom. But they'll have an omnipresence into eternity future. After the great white throne judgment, you have eternity future. What does the Bible say will happen when Jesus Christ receives the kingdom? I made the statement that Jesus Christ is not now King of Kings and not now Lord of Lords. He is not now, and he's not seated on the throne in the heavens, and his kingdom is not now in operation. I say that based upon what Daniel the prophet wrote down in Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, where it says, The Ancient of Days, that's one of the names for God the Father, will give the Son of Man, that's the name used in the Gospels for Jesus Christ, a dominion, a kingdom forever. Do you not remember the 40 days when Jesus had resurrected from the dead and he went to the Galilee with his disciples and was teaching them? Acts chapter 1 says he was teaching them prophecy, information pertaining to the kingdom to be set up. When they got back into Jerusalem, one of the disciples said, Jesus, are you going to set up your kingdom now? He said, no, I'm not. And then they said, well, when are you going to set up your kingdom? What did Jesus say? I don't know. Only my father knows that. The kingdom will be given to Jesus Christ. It is not now in operation. It is coming. And during this time, nations will have a role in all the activities that unfold, but into eternity future as well. In Daniel chapter 7, the ancient of the day says that this dominion, this kingdom is forever. The word there in Hebrew is olam, O-L-A-M. It's the name attached with El for a name of God, El Olam. All the names of God tell the characteristics of God. And El Olam means this, the eternality of God. El, God, Olam, forever, eternal. And so in eternity future, after the great white throne judgment, nations will still be in operation. Go to Revelation chapter 21. Revelation chapter 21 is talking about that period of time in eternity future, and it's dealing with a description of the new Jerusalem. And we'll get more into that later in another study. But let me just read a couple of verses, interesting verses to you. 
Book of Revelation, chapter 21, look at verse 23. And the city had no need of the sun, neither the moon, to shine in it. For the glory of God did lighteth it, and the Lamb is the light thereof. You might remember in Revelation chapter 1, it says, His face as the sun shineth in its very strength. And so Jesus Christ will be the power and light company in the future. Now look at what it says in verse 24. And the nations of them which are saved shall walk in the light of it. In other words, in the New Jerusalem, by the way, the New Jerusalem is not on the earth. It's hanging in the uh, space of the atmospheric heavens out there. More details in another study. The nations of them which are saved shall walk in the light of it. And the kings of the earth do bring their glory and honor unto it. During this time, we'll see that the New Jerusalem has 12 gates, three in each direction. Those gates are open 24-7. People have access to come in the gates. That's not their eternal abode, but indeed they'll have access and the nations will come. Look at verse 25. And the gates of it shall not be shut at all by day, for there shall be no night there. And they shall bring the glory and honor of the nations unto it. So nations are omnipresent. They are eternal. The nations of this world that are mentioned in Bible prophecy are indeed eternal. The nations mentioned in the Bible have a significant role in God's plan for the future. In fact, all the nations will gather together at Jerusalem in alignment with Satan and the Antichrist to try and stop God's plan for the future. That's Zechariah chapter 14 and verse 2. Now that will be our study for next week. Please join us at that time as we continue to answer the question, where is the United States in Bible prophecy? Dr. Jimmy DeYoung and the Legacy Series. We're going to have to take a break, and when we come back, Rick and I will take a look at the book right here on Prophecy Today Weekend. I'm Ruth Kramer with Mission Network News. Haiti lost its last 10 senators this week after their terms expired. The Caribbean nation now has no elected government officials left. For Haiti with Love's Ibida Hart says, for now... That just means no paperwork, but it could give more power to the gangs who've run rampant since the president's assassination in July of 2021. For Haiti with Love shares the love of Jesus with their patients. Pray those turn into gospel opportunities. And in Pakistan, a Christian woman working as a security guard was threatened with blasphemy charges after asking a man for his parking pass. The man, an employee of the Pakistani government, parked his vehicle in a restricted area of the Karachi airport. Nehemiah with FMI says, It's an example of how blasphemy laws in Pakistan can be used against Christians, even outside of religious situations. Ask God to strengthen Pakistan's believers who live under this constant threat. And find your place in this story at missionnews.org. Mission Network News, a service of One Way Ministries. I'm Ruth Kramer. The book of Revelation is God's final word to man and the timeline of the last days revealed to the Christians. This symbolism-filled example of apocalyptic literature can be difficult to understand, especially when simply reading it from beginning to end. Dr. Jimmy DeYoung's latest book, Revelation, A Chronology, takes a walk through the prophetic book of Revelation in the order that the events will take place, chronologically, sharing insights into its true meaning and doing so in an easy-to-understand and practical way. 
If you have difficulty understanding the book of Revelation, get your copy of Revelation, a chronology, and let Dr. Jimmy DeYoung aid you in your understanding of this profound end times prophecy book that God has preserved in his scriptures for Christians in the last days. To order your copy of Jimmy DeYoung's Revelation, a chronology, call us toll free at 877-674-3298 or visit our website at prophecytoday.com. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung Jr. And along with Rick, we've been examining current events in the light of God's prophetic word. This is the time of the program where we take a look at the book and we really rehearse some of the things that we talked about in the program and make it all come together by taking a look at the book. And Rick, after today's program, and I've got to tell you, thank you so much. Uh, You've done a great job on asking the questions, doing the interviews with Ken and and Dave Dolan, even with Rabbi Yehuda Glick. Excellent. Let's go over some of the things that you think are important for us to point out to our folks. Well, Jimmy, first up today was Ken Timmerman, and he covered some excellent topics. And, And like you said, we look at these events because they are setting the stage for Bible prophecy. We're not just news junkies. Now, we do follow the news and we do see where things are going, but these stories We choose them for a reason, and one of the interesting stories that we talked about today, and we haven't been covering it that much, is the European Union. Looks like this Russia-Ukraine crisis has exposed a fatal flaw in the European Union. They don't have a military arm. They're not strong enough because they are not unified enough, so it's looking like somebody needs to come together and unify them, which is a page right out of Bible prophecy, isn't it? It sure is. You know, and that goes back. We could start and in the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, and John's look at apocalyptic vision of what's going to take place in the future. The beast in Revelation chapter 13, Revelation chapter 13, verse 1 says, And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads and ten diadems and on its horns and blasphemous names on its head. This refers to that beast, the Antichrist, first mentioned really back in Daniel chapter 7, that little horn, also seen by in Nebuchadnezzar's dream in Daniel chapter 2 that Daniel interpreted about a future one world government. We do know that it refers to the area today which we would call the European Union. I thought it was interesting in the analysis of Ken's analysis, Rick, your questioning, your follow-up questions, that you know we pointed out the fact that really that system, the European Union, those nations in Europe are really set up right now for a leader to come in and establish an, a military to bring it all, bring those nations together that years ago decided to take down its borders. Uh, That was the thought process. You and I have traveled across Europe in doing uh, mission work, ministry work to many countries, taking people there. We've crossed those borders many times. So we've seen the uh, government that was set in place, what we call the European Union, but it doesn't seem to be working. We do know after the rapture of the church, everything is going to shift to that one world government being headquartered by the Antichrist in what is today we know as the European Union. So as we follow this, it does help us to understand 
that he's going to use. He will come up with a military might. He's going to protect Israel. He's going to allow the Jews to put up that temple. And he's also going to institute a financial system, which is called the Mark of the Beast. Well, Jimmy, all the stories that we follow, they all fit into this prophetic scenario that's going forward. It starts in the scripture and it goes in the Old Testament. We've got scriptures and and prophetic scripture in the New Testament as well. Uh, When we go and we move on from Ken, we usually go to our Middle East News Update, which is a focus on that specific part of the world, which we do need to focus on that specific part of the world because that is the center of the earth as God looks at it, his holy city, Jerusalem. And so we certainly focus there. Uh, One thing that I thought was interesting is it fits into the grand scheme of of, uh, Bible prophecy is Israel's complicated relationship they have right now with Russia. They are walking a fence, uh, trying not to uh, make Russia mad, but also trying to support Ukraine. And before what you just talked about uh, with the Antichrist coming, setting up the one world government, before that takes place, Russia is going to be involved with Israel, aren't they? They sure are. As a matter of fact, you know, when we look at the alignment of nations in Ezekiel 38, it is interesting when we have seen how really, uh, as Russia has tried to exert itself, reestablish and rebuild its empire that it had, um, it hasn't had much success. And it will need an alignment of nations that come against in some way, for some reason, they're going to turn against Israel. Will it be, and I think it is, that hook that's put in the jaw of that animal, as it says in Ezekiel 38, that will be the Temple Mount, that center, Ezekiel 5.5. 5, you said it. Jerusalem is the center of the earth. And what's at the center of the earth? This location that has been from the beginning in the Garden of Eden all throughout history. It's been Satan trying to gain control of that. And into the future, Jesus Christ will come back and establish himself, his kingdom, right there in the city of Jerusalem and gain back everything that has been from Genesis chapter 3 on until Revelation chapter 21, we're going to see that Satan has been under control on this earth, but it will be a theocratic kingdom in the future, and that will come to light at the end of the tribulation period. And Jimmy R.C. Murrow talking about the one world government, the one world economic system. That is something that you talked about beforehand. And then, uh, of course, Rabbi Yehuda Glick talking about the rebuilding of the temples, something that has to take place before the tribulation begins and those tribulation activities start. All these things, Jimmy, working together, what as Christians or non-Christians, how should we look at these events and what should it cause us to do? Well, as believers, it should help us to live pure, productive lives, holy lives in an unholy world to understand the urgency of the hour. If you're not a believer or you know someone that is not, It's urgent to get them the gospel message. And it's really as simple as ABC, helping others to admit that they are a sinner, that they need to be saved. God established a program for himself to have a relationship with us. That's through his son dying on the cross. That's John chapter 3, verse 16. Believe that Jesus Christ came to this earth to die for the sins of every person, all of mankind on the earth, and then see to call upon the Lord and be saved. Rick, thank you so much for joining with me on the program today. Thank you for doing the hard work. And I look forward to coming back as we continue to look at current events in the light of God's prophetic word. My pleasure, Jimmy. And should the Lord tarry, we will be here again next week.
folks, with all that is happening, as we focus on these events, everything is leading to the rapture of the church. And it could happen today. Even as R.C. Merle said, we should be living, expecting it to take place even before this program is done. Let's keep looking up until. Thank you so much for joining us today. This is Jay Johnson inviting you to join us again next week for more of Prophecy Today. Prophecy Today is a listener-supported production of Shofar Communications in Chattanooga, Tennessee.